and welcome back to Rupture Radio. I'm Nicole and today we have an International Women's Day special episode. Uh, with me today are Jess Spear. Hi. And Diana O'Dwyer. Hi. So we want to talk about the new issue of Rupture magazine. We're on our third issue now. Um, it does have a focus on socialist feminism, um, obviously in honour of International Women's Day. But first of all, I actually think it would be good to get a bit of history on the origins of International Women's Day. Um, just to kind of find out why we do celebrate it. I suppose to start, um, we could note that it wasn't actually originally celebrated on the 8th of March. That's something that's been modernised about it. So it was first celebrated on the 19th of March back in 1911. Um, And this date was chosen to commemorate the 1848 revolution in Berlin. So it's always had a revolutionary kind of background to it. I suppose the reason why they chose the 19th was because on the 18th of March uh, they had a day dedicated to the fallen heroes um, of the revolution in Berlin and on the day the first International Women's Day in Germany there was 2.5 million copies of a flyer which encouraged women's participation in the rally I suppose it's kind of like their version of sponsoring a Facebook post it's just so much easier now to distribute your information um, I really so love the text of that flyer, though. It talks about like going out in all your glory. Nice. Do you do you have what it actually says there, Jasper? Yeah, Jacobin has a really good article on this, and they say, um, where is it? There's a picture of the flyer here, and it says, "Comrades, working women, and girls, March 19 is your day. It is your right. Behind your demands stand social democracy." organized labor. The socialist women of all countries are in solidarity with you. March 19 should be your day of glory, which I nice. really loved. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I really love that as well. I feel like that kind of message would resonate with women still now, you know. <laughs> so the first one saw like over a million women. Um, most of these women were already organized in the SDP or in like trade unions within Germany. And their call was like forward to female suffrage because obviously that's your first, you know, call when you're going for International Women's Day and you don't yet have suffrage. Um, And they organised popular public political assemblies, which was like 42 in Berlin alone. Um, And women just discussed the issues affecting their lives. Um, And then in 1911... Um, women workers in the USA, Switzerland, Denmark and Austria, they had it on the 8th of March and then they were later joined in future years by women in France, Holland, Sweden, Bohemia and very importantly Russia because three years later um, on International Women's Day, the 8th of March, it was actually women workers who led the action, um, which was a mass strike, which actually then led to the Russian Revolution. So it has such a revolutionary meaning behind it. Like, um, and I just feel as though it's one of those things that's now being a bit commercialized. Would you reckon it's kind of feels a bit more like that now? Yeah. I mean, it's funny because coming from America, like I never do anything about international women's day until I became a socialist. Like it's not a thing in the U S no one buys flowers for all the women in their lives. You know, there's no advertisement about, you know, buy this flower, or get that card. It's it's not like an, another Mother's Day or anything like that in America. And it wasn't until I think maybe like 2012 that I even first heard of it. Um, 
And I think, you know, it's kind of like in the U.S. where we don't really celebrate May Day. You know, you don't have International Labor Day or anything like that celebrated in the U.S. Instead, Labor Day is celebrated in September. Um, and so there's really a low... The whole thing of like, don't wear white after Labor Day. That's so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And so, I mean, it's just, there's not, a, not as much recognition that workers internationally celebrate May Day. But that changed in the mid-2000s when the mostly Latino immigrant population in the U.S. brought their militant traditions with them, including May Day, um, and in their struggle for immigration reform and amnesty for all workers and families, they started to organize rallies and protests on May Day and started to like bring back the tradition of May Day to America. Um, but it's interesting because, yeah, International Women's Day was not a thing. And when I moved here, like you see all these advertisements about flowers and stuff like that. And like, I got flowers at a job that I had a few years ago in Ireland. And I was like, okay, are we going to talk about the militant traditions of women's organizing? It seems as though the women that they were speaking to on the poster weren't out demanding that their men in their lives buy them flowers anyway. I think that that was a, a bit of a missed point for the <laughs> Hallmark companies. <laughs> I think though it's really had a bit of a resurgence um, in Ireland, like the in the last five years or whatever, with repeal and everything. Well, it's been quiet the last couple of years, but say around 2016, 2017, because I remember for years it was kind of had become a real kind of corporate feminism day. Like I remember one Woman's Day was like Joan Burton, who was tarnished at the time, had a meeting like with the IMF, like with Lena Gard or something, you know, like this Ew. real kind of bourgeois <laughs> feminism and all this stuff about like breaking the glass ceiling and women in managerial positions and all this kind of stuff. Um, but then I think there was a few, right few like radical um, International Women's Day during the whole abortion rights struggle, you know, yes. um, I don't know, strike for repeal. I remember that um, in 2017 and then the year after there was like this amazing really radical and um, kind of spontaneous demonstration in the middle of the day in 2018 I think it was the whole city centre was just taken over with all these It was so alive Diana it was a beautiful day to be a socialist out there fighting on the streets so inspiring or something I just I feel I for me particularly I remember uh, there was so what led from that demonstration the random one during the day there was an official march that night and it was like everybody was so pumped from what happened during the day that there was like I don't know a bit of militancy about the march there was like um they were doing work on the Lewis tracks at the time and I remember all the young women like grabbing the railings that were up and like shaking them and it just felt really like we are demanding abortion rights you know and it was like I'm like honestly I'm getting shivers up my spine talking about it again it's just the thrill of a protest how much we miss it <laughs> I know yeah. yeah it seems like so long ago it's only like a couple of years ago really you know yeah, and that coincided also with the start of the international women's strike, which, you know, was uneven across the world. But in, in different countries, like in Ireland, you did have thousands, if not millions of women taking to the streets to demand abortion rights, bodily autonomy. Um, you would have seen that in Latin America. But then also we're seeing women striking in Poland and Switzerland. So it's really interesting to see that International Women's Day like have a strike aspect of it. And then that strike being brought into other um, other days of protests as well. So why do you guys think that we are seeing this new uprising, like a, a new feminist wave kind of 
sweeping the world. Do you want to take that one, Diana? (laughs) (laughs) I know, there's just so many factors leading into that. Like, I mean, I think a big one of it is like just since 2007, 2008, when you had this big economic crash and it's just still kind of reverberations coming out of that. Um, All the big impacts that had um, in terms of like rising inequality for people, like, and especially for women, um, you know, with attacks on public services, like, you know, education and childcare. Um, and then also attacks on working conditions for women in the workplace as well with this increasing casualization and precarious work. So women are really getting it from all angles, um, particularly in the last, you know, um, 10, 15 years or so. Um, and I think with more women than ever before, like um, in the workplace, like in countries all around the world, and then women are much more educated and much more confident um, than they were like kind of going back years ago. So you've got like the impact of all the previous waves of the women's movement have put women in a situation where they have a lot more resources to be able to mobilize and to fight back um, when we are attacked. And I think just generally as well, like there's just a rising radicalism, like all around the world like before this whole fucking coronavirus pandemic like confined us to house arrest um um, like there was actually a big increase in struggle like in loads of different areas like in 2019 you had all of these uprisings and movements and like the women's movement had really been like going strong like um for the last number of years you know um and hopefully that'll pick up again once we get back out protesting you know Yeah. And I think also just people's expectations, women's expectations today are just far different from our mothers and grandmothers of like what kind of life we expect for ourselves, the role that we expect to play in families and in society. It's just different compared to before. Like we expect more from our partners in relationships and within our families. We want more for ourselves within society with what kind of job we want, um, how long we want to be working, you know, the time that we want in our lives for other creative pursuits and hobbies and things like that. And I think that that also compels women to step up and fight back. Um, And like most of the big protests that you would have seen would have been around bodily autonomy, but you, I mean, connected to like my body, my choice is also like so many other aspects of your life that you want more control over. Um, Yeah. Like what is real choice when you have to make the choice not to have a child because of the poverty that you're in or because of your lack of resources? That's not a real choice available to somebody. Exactly. Or you have to take the career break because, you know, women are paid less than men for the same job. Like if you have a career and then you decide to have a child, you're typically the one in the relationship that ends up having to take that career break, which impacts the amount of money you earn over time. It impacts how well your career goes and all of that. And you've actually seen that in COVID where a number of women have said, hey, look, I have not been able to keep up in my career in the same way as men because you're more disproportionately responsible for childcare, for shopping, for cleaning the house, all those things. Um, So I think overall, like raised expectations, which come from like previous waves of the women's movement and the gains won there um, are a big reason why women today are just like, no more, you know, we're not going to take this anymore. This is not the life we want to live. And I think just even in terms of the personal 
stuff that like women have had to put up with for so long like women are just like why the hell should we put up with this kind of casual everyday sexism anymore like Mm -hmm. they're just not like just loads of stuff that you know women never liked like in terms of just casual sort of harassment and all that like is really like with me me too movement and all that like and you know women are just like why on earth should we have to put up with this anymore like this is just has to stop um and I think that's just a real just sense of impatience but all that old shit is like a a big driving factor like for the women's movement having a resurgence as well you know I suppose um our issue three of Rupture magazine covers a lot of these kind of points in the different articles that we have well, all three of us have written an article for the magazine. What a surprise that we're all on the podcast together to talk about it. Uh, <laughs> um, so, obviously, we said at the beginning, our issue does focus on women's issues, paying tribute to International Women's Day. Um, we do have a lead section called Mana. So, could you tell us a bit about this and the different articles that are in it? Perhaps, Jess, if you have any insight there for us? Yeah, so um, because of International Women's Day, but also because I think COVID really brought out how much society depends on women's labor, both paid and unpaid, um, you know, they make up a disproportionate number of the essential workers, whether you're nurses or your healthcare workers in general, or your teachers, childminders, elder, elderly care workers, shop workers, like women are at the forefront of like making sure society runs. Um, but like we've just talked about, they also do all this unpaid labor at home. And so we kind of wanted to focus in on what is the experience of women in COVID? Um, and what is the experience of women generally? Like what does women's oppression look like and what can we do to fight back against it? And so some of the topics that we covered um, are women's oppression in Ireland, like a brief look at the history there. Um, we also have an article looking at where are we with abortion rights today in Ireland after you know, now nearly three years since repeal. What does it look like for women? Do they still have to travel? There's a really great article by Sinead Kennedy on that. And then um, there's an excellent article, which is actually an abridgment of a document written by the Fourth International Women's Commission on the new rise of the women's movement, which touches on so many of the things that we were just talking about, about why are women taking to the streets and demanding a different life? Um, And then also we, you know, the magazine has lots of other material that would be super interesting, eco-socialist material looking at the metabolic rift in Ireland. And then there's great articles on combining the environmental movement and the trade unions. And then there's also a really good debate with Diana um, and John Barry from the Just Transition Greens on whether we should ally with green capital. That's a really interesting debate that I, um, I encourage people to get a copy of Rupture so that they can read that. And I believe you have an article which makes the case for eco-socialist feminism. So if we could get a bit more specific details on your own article, that would be good. Yeah, I mean, I started to think about this article because um, like when you think about environmental protests today, 
women are almost always at the forefront of it, you know, um, and not just environmental protests. They're really at the forefront of all kinds of different areas of struggle, you know, wages, working conditions, all of that. Look at the Debenhams workers that are fighting for a fair redundancy right at like, you know, the very sharp edge of what's going to happen after COVID's finished and the government is going to try to bring in austerity to have women at the forefront of the fight back for what is theirs. Um, what is their due is, is not an accident, but looking at environmental struggle and women being at the at the fore of that, I wanted to understand why. And it isn't that men aren't involved in environmental struggle. Of course they are. But most of the well-known activists today um, are women. You know, and I think the first person that comes to mind is Greta Thunberg, but yeah. there's also Vanessa Nakate of Uganda. And then here in Ireland, like I wasn't here during Shelter Sea, but I've been told that Maura Harrington was a big leader in that movement. And then I think every single environmentalist in Ireland knows Saoirse McHugh, you know, um, and it was just um, a few days ago was the fifth anniversary of the murder of uh, Berta Caceres who was that Honduran environmental activist and indigenous leader fighting against the destruction of the land there. Um, and then at the beginning of the article, I talk about the murder of Fikili Changase, who was an anti-mining um, activist in South Africa, and she was murdered in October of last year. And so I really wanted to understand, like, why are women so involved in the defense of nature? Um, and that led me to kind of look into eco-feminist ideas. I think it was such a strong opening to just start with the brutal murder and just, you know, really lay the ground of what these women and these activists are willing to do in order to fight for the causes that they're fighting for. So just if you wouldn't mind to give us a bit more of an outline on what you mean by ecofeminism. Yeah, so I didn't actually know that much about ecofeminism before I started to research this article and think about it. I'd come across it a few times, but I didn't know that much. And so what I found was, so ecofeminism as kind of a theory and a practice, it emerged the last time that there was like the simultaneous rise of the feminist movement and environmental movements. And that would have been in the 1970s. And then today, again, as we were just talking about, you have the rise of a new women's movement globally. And at the same time, you have a climate justice movement, a call for um, halting biodiversity loss right at the same time. And so you have um, a flowering of new thinking around ecofeminist lines. And at its core, ecofeminism is interested in understanding why women and nature are both subordinated and exploited. And exploited. Um, and within ecofeminism, there are different strands of thought. So there is one strand or one tendency that I would call more essentialist tendency that links women's reproductive biology, you know, their fertility and all of that to nature. And they suggest that we have an affinity with nature because of it. We have a natural affinity with nature because of that. And they they mostly blame patriarchy as like this big umbrella term and men in general, and men cannot be connected to nature and don't have the same affinity for it because they don't have the same reproductive biology. Um, and therefore they're more destructive and they care less about it. The Marxist tendency doesn't agree with that. It doesn't 
look at our biology as what connects us to nature or the affinity that we might have for nature. Instead, it looks at kind of the systemic and material reasons why women in nature are not valued in capitalism and why we have certain roles within our families, like we were just talking about, and within society. Why do we do and are forced to do unpaid labor? Why are we paid less? And all of that. And, and how this actually props up capitalism and ensures that it is able to continue profiting. I mean, as a Marxist, I obviously agree more with the Marxist tendency of ecofeminism. And I think like as an eco-socialist, we need to find ways of bringing together the demands that we have around climate justice and biodiversity loss with our demands to end sexism in all of its forms. Um, I mean, if you look at the more liberal strands of ecofeminism, they call for like more women's voices, more women representing us um, in the doll or in the Shannon or something like that. And to me, like, this is just the same thing that you heard in the 90s, you know, like Josefa Madigan is not going to liberate us and she's not going to help us stop CETA. So it's it's empty of like the radical content that it needs. Like the shame that women were put under in America for not wanting Hillary Clinton to be the first female president. Like just because you're a woman doesn't mean you're going to implement any useful changes. So that's a very fair point. <laughs> exactly. Like she was telling people like, you're never, ever going to get health care. You know, you're never, ever going to have these things like basically tell a women like, no, you can't have this stuff, you know, and she's meant to be who we, who's going to win this stuff for us. Absolutely not. So um, eco-socialist feminism really is looking at, you know, why are women experiencing the sexism that they do and all the different ways that they do? And then what power do we have as workers and, and through the labor that we do both in the home and, and within the workplace to fight back? Um, and there's two examples that I talk about in the article, um, McDonald's workers that had a protest and a strike around Me Too to fight back against the sexual harassment that they face. And then also there was a huge strike wave led by teachers that started in West Virginia. And those West Virginia teachers looked at fossil fuels and taxing fossil fuels in order to pay for their wages, their benefits, but also um, for all the public services that were necessary in West Virginia. So it kind of shows that women can use their power in the workplace when they're organized to go after sexism as sexual harassment, but also to go after fossil fuel companies. So it shows the power that we have as workers to kind of fight back against our exploitation as um, workers, but also the exploitation that nature faces and as we face as women as well. I feel like that shows um, lessons learned as well through collective struggle elsewhere because the first thing you come across when you're making any demands is the kind of, well, how are you going to pay for that, you know, situation. So the fact that they pre-tackled it and were like, okay, this is how you can pay for it. And this is actually how you can help be environmentally friendly too. It's, it's good. It shows that the world over, workers are watching each other's protests and taking lessons and, you know, becoming stronger against the powers that we fight against. Like, So, uh, Diana, as Jess mentioned, you do have a wonderful debate in the magazine, but you also have a short article where you report on the exciting news of RISE launching our Women's Caucus. So I was wondering if you could give us a bit more of a, a bit of a spiel on that. 
Um, yeah, we just kind of set up our women's caucus there shortly before Christmas. Um, it's something we've been thinking about doing for a while because we just think it's really important that there's a kind of a space where women members of the organisation can come together and just discuss the issues that specifically affect them as women. Um, and to kind of talk about their experiences, um, like how... In particular, we had a discussion about how like the coronavirus pandemic is affecting us, like um, in terms of like different childcare responsibilities or whatever that different members would have um, and other caring um, responsibilities um, for elderly relatives and, you know, helping out and stuff like that. Um, that tends to fall disproportionately on women. Um, that's just kind of one example of like you're thinking about stuff that affects you like in your own everyday life uh, and then you're trying to think about how we would address that politically what kind of demands would be raised um, around that and I think that's a really important role that kind of a women's caucus can play because like not that we don't have lots of lovely male comrades um, in Rise, but like just with the best will in the world, it's often the case that like women can kind of feel a bit more um, confident and like talk more and for longer when there aren't like, you know, loads of men in the same space. Because like men often kind of just use up a lot of oxygen in the room because like they're kind of just <laughs> raised to be generally more self-confident and to just talk more. You know, I mean, remember reading stuff about this that like they've done like kind of scientific studies and found that like people perceive that women talk for longer periods of time than they actually do. You know, and this is oh, men and seeing women. That as it's well. weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah, like women are just conversation. She she knows hmm. it. Like. Yeah, like women are just really conscious of like, how long have I been talking for? Oh God, I hope I'm not like cutting across other people and stuff, um, which is really good. Like men should really take a leaf out of her book on that. I'm not saying like women are wrong to have that attitude. <laughs> but um, I just think, and it's good, you get to talk about like um, the issues that like all affect us collectively um, um, as women and like, you know, not to feel that that isn't important or that it isn't political. Um, and I think that's why like, you know, lots of socialist organizations have set up like women's groups and women's caucuses for the same reason, because like, um, like women at the moment now would make up, you know, over half of the working class internationally. So it's not like it's a minority thing. Like it always cracks me up when people refer to women as being a minority. Like, no, we're not. Like our experience is the most common experience within the working class because we make up more of it, like, <laughs> you know. Um, but also like for any oppressed groups within the working class, I think in general, like it's a good thing to have space for different oppressed groups to discuss their own experiences. Um, because really like if you're going to, you know, liberate the working class, you've got to liberate every part of the working class and address all of the oppressions that that workers face, you know. Yeah, I actually um, got involved in politics through a women's group. I started off with Rosa back in, God, it was probably 2015, maybe. And I just found it really encouraging to have the space to discuss oppressions and issues that were directly affecting me like so to you know I, I was very politically naive when I came around and I was like what what's repeal you know what do you mean we don't have rights to do these things you know because obviously I, I had never been in the situation where I needed to get an abortion so I just it it wasn't talked about in society around me so it was really empowering to have these people 
discussing it openly and, you know, saying we actually should have these rights. And it just, I don't know, I would have found myself intimidated by broader meetings because like you say, you know, sometimes men can dominate the space and just be more confident in themselves. So I actually found it very beneficial to have somewhere to kind of gain confidence before I kind of went into a broader socialist organization. Yeah, it can be helpful too, I think, to kind of voice your experience and then have other people in the room say, oh, I experienced that too. And then talk about why, rather than feeling like you're a bit of an alien, like, oh, I'm the only one experiencing this. And, you know, you feel a bit weird. And also one of the things that I really like about it is, um, I don't know about you all, but I've always been the most political person in my friend group out of, you know, wherever I lived, I lived in three different states in the US. Um, all the women that I was around, I was the most political person. And sometimes it made me feel a little bit weird. And so it can be really nice to be in a setting where you're around other women who are just as political and just as interested in learning about politics and discussing theory, but also want to talk about how it feels to be a woman in, in a political space, because um, it's not easy. Um, so I really liked that about um, our women's caucus. And I also really like how, um, you know, Phil had her poem. I thought that was wonderful because political meetings sometimes can feel a bit um, culturally dead. I know that sounds harsh. Yeah, but it's nice just, to have the creative side involved. Yeah, you're just, you know, you hear somebody kick off a discussion, they give you some facts, they tell you what they think about it, and then we go around the room and we talk. And that's wonderful. And because of COVID, we're all on screen, we're not able to kind of chat with each other and go out and have a drink afterwards. Um, but I don't know, I've always looked at the movements of the 60s and the 70s with the singing and the crafting and things like that. I've been a bit jealous that you haven't seen so much of that now. So I really liked that Phil shared her poem at our um, at our last meeting. And I'm looking forward to the the upcoming meeting where we're going to hear about how women are, you know, using their crafting abilities and interests to kind of bring art to the movement, to the, to the women's movement, but to movements generally, which I think is important to help them grow um, and also make other people feel like they can contribute that, you know, you don't have to go and read a whole bunch of theory to contribute to building this movement. Um, you can contribute in lots of small ways too. So, um, I don't, Diana, what would you have to say to the people who say that women's caucuses are like a, a separatist? Is that how you would pronounce that word? <laughs> um, yeah, I just think really like what rock have you been living on for the last number of, of decades? I don't know. I just think that that's a really kind of old fashioned attitude to have, um, like I know reading kind of um, Marxist stuff from like a hundred years ago, you'd find um, socialist women like Alexandra Kollontai kind of, you know, having to justify the idea of having women's organizations. So it's mad that like, people still kind of bring it up now, you know, I think um, those early um, Russian women feminists kind of, um, well, they wouldn't have called themselves feminists actually at the time. They didn't like the term very much because it was very associated like with kind of um, more upper class women who weren't interested um, in equal rights for the majority of working women, you know. Um, but like at, at the time, they 
we're arguing for women's organizations, you know, just because they're they're necessary um, to deal with the different types of issues that um, face women collectively. Like, I mean, it's still the case now that a lot of the issues that were affecting women like 100 years ago, um, actually it's in, I was reading the article that Nicole wrote about the Paris Commune and one of the things they were raising was like childcare in, 18, in the 1870s, you know. Yeah. So it's these kind of issues like just keep coming up, you know. Um, and those kind of things don't really get like politicized in the same way or to the same extent unless you have like women pushing for them it's like with any in any kind of political movement or whatever you need kind of groups of people to come together and say hey attention needs to be paid to this particular issue like this is important for our overall fight um and i think that's a, a really important aspect of women's caucuses is that like in order to um, advance things for the working class in general you need to advance things for women and the best way to help to do that is to get women um, involved in actively fighting for that and discussing these things um, ourselves together like I mean there's a really good slogan um, I think it's from like the disability rights movement originally it's um, nothing about us without us mm. um, and oh, I think that's nice that's, yeah it really just encapsulates that like people who are oppressed or exploited like are the best people um to be um fighting and to putting forward you know different things like obviously um um, in cooperation with like the wider um, strength of people in the socialist movement as well um but that like in terms of knowing what the issues are and stuff like that I think it's really important interesting that you mentioned the Paris Commune article because that's something that I was thinking of as well so earlier in my bit about International Women's Day I was talking about how they organise these public assemblies for women and in the Paris Commune the women's groups and women organising amongst themselves was quite a big thing there as well so it's just really interesting to see that these movements in history have really benefited from women getting together and discussing issues that directly affect them you know creating their confidence and doing exactly what we're trying to do through the caucus. Um, I actually had no idea that this even happened until I was approached to write the article for Rupture and I'm fascinated. Obviously, it's one of those things, though, the classic, you know, it's completely left out of our history textbooks as children and stuff because it involves workers gaining some rights through protests. So cut out immediately, of course. So basically, back in 1871, in March, um, the workers actually held power entire power of the whole city of Paris for 72 days and within that time the stuff that they were able to accomplish and the rights they were able to give people it's just really inspiring to show you know what we can win (laughs) Um, the role that socialist women played in the Paris Commune is quite often overlooked surprise surprise um, these women, um, they were actually the core of the working class networks, which is what I was talking about there, uh, you know, comparing it to the Women's Caucus. So basically they had these debate clubs that existed in Paris, <clears throat> I beg your pardon, uh, before the Paris Commune came about. And it was basically acted as like a bridging gap between those who were elected to leadership of the commune and the general workers. So these groups played quite a big role in in keeping the thing together. Um, And they were used to skillfully organise and gain support um, for reforms. So for example, for women, uh, to make it a more equal society. And the National Guard, which is like the 
People's Army, I suppose you could describe it as, that they had going at the time. Um, they had a wives allowance and through reform and, and discussing things in the debate clubs, uh, the women were actually able to push. So it was given to unmarried partners of the National Guard as well as those married. So just kind of breaking general stereotypes of the time. And then like within the Paris Commune, just to kind of give an idea of what the women were fighting against, <clears throat> there's one of the like leading members, uh, like really influential in the French international, um, Prodon, Prodon. Um, he described women as physically weak, incapable of abstract thought, and um, fit only for marriage or prostitution, and these. Thoughts are what women were facing in what was seen as like an already advanced layer of society. So can you only imagine what the people who were into the fucking royalists were doing like? Um, and like, it's just amazing to see because men like this were actually publicly challenged by women like Polly uh, Mink. And just the fact that having the core group of these debate clubs allowed her to gain confidence to publicly address somebody who'd said such slanderous things about women and had such an influential part in it all. It just, it's really inspiring. Um, but then in May, from the 21st to the 28th, basically the French army um, stepped in and they absolutely slaughtered like at least 20,000 men, women and children. And you know yourself, these figures are obviously way off to make it seem like the Paris army or the French army are not as bad as they were. Um, and just there's accounts from newspapers at the time of people like fearing being burnt to death basically in their apartment. So basically it was won through intimidation. The, the city was won back. So I, it just goes to show you the importance of when you do get revolutionary things, building a defence against those who are protecting the old order is so important because you need to be able to to tackle it because they are going to come back stronger and fight really hard like the Paris Army did in this example. Like, So yeah, just a really interesting time in history. And I just found it fascinating that I had heard absolutely nothing about it until I specifically looked into it. Yeah, it's interesting what you said there about the role that women played within the commune. And I can imagine that the role that they played, like the commune opened up the, the possibility for women to play a bigger role within the building of the commune and the organization of society, which means that for a lot of the men who would have had such sexist views, they're watching women play a role and do things that they were told they were not capable of doing. And that's one of the things that we talk about, about how important it is for women and men working together and fighting for change together can really help to break down sexist ideas. It's not that you shouldn't challenge them. You absolutely should at every turn, but they can really be challenged and overcome when men and women are working together. Um, and you start to see that actually all these ideas that you had about women are just not true. Um, and the fact that they played such a prominent role in the Paris Commune, I think it's it's unfortunate that it's kind of not there and it's not as prominent. So I'm so happy it's a big part of your article. One of the things that I think always struck me about the Paris Commune was that like the famous song, The Internationale, comes from the Paris Commune. Um, you know, I, I don't remember his name. I think it's Eugene Potier. Yeah, Potier. Uh, he wrote it like when he fled, he wrote it. Yeah. And like, that's a song that is sung all over the world um, by people who are fighting for. 
yeah it's just society. really interesting to think so he was like in hiding while he was writing it and he was trying to like appeal to workers internationally to like follow the example of the Paris Commune so he's like sitting there and hiding being like yeah everyone will read this and then we'll just have a big revolution you know what I mean bless him like he, he tried but it's great that song still inspires people today and I had no idea of the link to the Paris Commune so yeah it's beautiful okay well we might wrap it up there um I mean there's a lot more that we could discuss and I think that we'll definitely have to come back to some more of the rupture magazine articles within the different episodes of the podcast in the coming weeks um if people are interested in getting a copy of the magazine you can get it now on rupture.ie and please if you could consider taking out a subscription to support the magazine that would be greatly appreciated and supporters who are on the top tier in the patreon uh, for the podcast will actually just get a free copy of the magazine sent out to you well free because you give us money every month so it's not really free in the end I suppose <laughs> um, but um, as usual the links for all these things will be in the notes for the episode and um, you know if people are interested in in coming along to a Rise Women's Caucus meeting to build your confidence before you join a, a wider meeting um, you can reach out to us uh, at Rise or also um, you may have heard that we have made the decision to join People Before Profit as a, an organisation. So we do encourage people to have a look into them and consider joining. And, you know, hopefully we'll all be together on the um, revolutionary front lines with each other. <laughs> uh, so until next time, goodbye and thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. Fuck, you stick your trousers on and you last bit of makeup. 